Mike and music team, another year. Thank you for your faithfulness. We've had more than one technological mishap, and for those of you that have been here since I've been here almost eight years next month, well, eight years next month, I can't ever recall walking into this pulpit without a set of paper notes, but we just couldn't print my notes on the printer this morning. So this is why this computer is here. I hope that it's not a distraction for you. It certainly is one for me, but I'll pray that it's it's not. But it's great to see you. I uh, trust that you have um, full tummies and plenty of leftovers from yesterday. Trust that you were able to uh, worship, um, gather with your family. Uh, well, we begin... Um, as we've done now for five years, uh, a summer in the Psalms. And so we want to commence yet another summer together uh, in the book of Psalms. And so I say this most years we begin, why the Psalms? Well, in the Psalms, perhaps like no other portion of Scripture, do we receive an insight into the responses of the human heart? as it pertains to God, as it pertains to life, as it pertains to suffering, as it pertains to joy and salvation. The Psalms really are where all the emotions of mankind are kind of set before us, where they're really laid bare. We see in the Psalms emotional responses such as praises to God, uh, fears that surround a person. Uh, immense tragedy is reflected in the Psalms. Monumental triumph is reflected in the Psalms. Despairing doubts is reflected in the Psalms. Miraculous deliverance is reflected in the Psalms. Exceeding joys is in the Psalms as well. And the grip of hope is certainly in the Psalms. The Psalms display for us with utmost clarity the desperate state of all men and women. They display for us the glory and majesty of a holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-sovereign God. And simply put, if you want to sum up what the Psalms are, they are the grandest of praises and the grandest of petitions. They're a guide to our path. They're obviously written, uh, delivered to us in written form. They're fully inerrant and they're for us to soak in, to meditate upon. And that'll be our aim again this summer to spend some time together in the Psalms. You know, after five years, five summers, we have preached through quite a number of Psalms. And um, each year I kind of pray and ask, what, what would the Lord have for us? And, you know, when you read the Psalms yourself, there's some psalms you're like, oh, I'll skip that one. Why? It says, slay the wicked, O God. And we sometimes want to go to the, we often want to go and be encouraged. But there's the whole counsel of God. We can't just run to psalms that are always lifting us up. And so I thought, well, the word of God always lifts us up, but you know what I mean. The imprecatory psalms. If I don't uh, change things up a little bit, we'll have an entire summer full of slay the wicked, O God. Now, in God's providence, that might be fitting, but what I thought would be best is um, we begin to go through the psalm sequentially. 
It makes it uh, makes more sense. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 3. We're just going to begin. You say, hang on, what about Psalm 1 and 2? Well, we covered those last year, I believe. So Psalm 3 is where we'll find ourselves and we'll just begin a journey. And when we get to the Psalms that we've already covered, it might have been five years ago, so we'll just have to see how we go. Uh, maybe we'll revisit a Psalm or two or maybe we'll skip over. But here we are. It's summer. It's good to see you. I want to say, yeah, as um, I think Sam or James made mention that this is the last Lord's Day of this year. And what a year it's been. Another year marked by the faithfulness of our God. You know, when I think about this church, I think this is a church full of people who love the Lord, love His Word, love this local church. There's often marks of what a healthy church is, um, sound preaching, uh, the, the dispensing of the Lord's table, baptism, church discipline, all the marks of a faithful church, but also identifications or the, the result of a, of a faithful, healthy church is often twofold. You have to kick the people out there to go home. We don't really do that, but um, they stay around so long after the service, uh, fellowshipping, and that's certainly what our church does after the Lord's Day service. Often the deacons are turning the lights off in subtle ways to remind us to go home. Um, but we love being here, we love being together, we love fellowshipping. So make sure you do that wherever in environment you are. It's a beautiful day outside. Another mark though is, 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 the, is giving. giving. And what an amazing providence to see that we'll end this year some well, well above uh, what was budgeted in the term of general giving. And so this is uh, something we can praise God for. You are a generous people. Uh, let's keep uh, trying to be faithful before the Lord in all aspects of the life of this church. And so I just wanted to make mention of that. Um, this is a special place to be, a special place to minister the Word of God. And so um, appreciate you uh, immensely. Psalm 3, let's read it together as we begin this summer in the Psalms. It says there, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Yahweh... How my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. My glory. And the one who lifts my head. I was crying to Yahweh with my voice. And he answered me. From his holy mountain. Selah. I laid down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. That's where we begin this summer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we humble uh, our hearts before you. 
Help us to settle our hearts and minds before you if they're troubled. You are worthy of our worship, worthy of our adoration. And so we come asking that you might reveal more and more of who you are through your word to us. We don't believe that you're silent in this world, Lord. We believe that you speak through your word. And so we're so grateful for that. Father, would you send your spirit to do a mighty work of sanctification in each of our hearts? And if anyone is here on this campus within earshot of my voice, may, and they are lost, may they come to know you today. And so thank you for this precious people and thank you for this time afforded to us to worship you by sitting under your word. And we ask that you'd bless it mightily in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's four, there's four pieces to this psalm um, that'll highlight for us really the reality of life, the reality of life. I believe it's Job 5.7 that says that man was born for trouble as sparks fly upward. You and I certainly know what it's like to live uh, in difficult times. We're not immune from difficulty in our life, wherever that difficulty may be found. And so life is often, well is, not often, but truly is a commingling of lament and then a complete confidence in God. That's kind of what marks the Christian, is a commingling of lament and a complete confidence in God. That's what we're about. That's what we have been given grace to be. You will be remembered that, you'll remember rather that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it says to you, Christian, it has, it has been granted as a gift to believe, but what? But to not only to believe, but to suffer. To suffer. Philippians 1.29 tells us salvation is a gift of God and suffering is a gift of God. Lament and complete confidence in God is who we are. If you're taking notes, I want to give you the four pieces to Psalm 3. Right up front, we'll see number one, our frequent problems in verses one and two. Our frequent problems. In verses three and four, we'll see our ever-present protection in verses three and four. Third, we'll see our deep sense of peace in verses five and six. And then in verses six through seven, we'll see our ongoing petition. So we've got frequent problems. We have an ever-present protection, we have a deep sense of peace, and we have the need for ongoing petition. I was able to draw and adapt that from the Holman Old Testament commentary. And if you don't have a set of the Old Testament commentary set, you can probably find one in the bookstore after church. That's great. Now, you would have noticed that I've made that outline quite personal by the words, our, our. The reason behind that is I want to be as our goal, the driving home from this psalm about how it applies to our day-to-day -day life. But in order to do that, you can never, ever skip over what the actual context is. Too often we want to run to personal 
application at the expense of great, great treasure. We want to understand the interpretation of this psalm and what it is. And so first we need to consider God's arrangement of Psalm 3. God's arrangement. Obviously, it's a third psalm, meaning that Psalm 1 and 2, uh, they are the doorway into the book of Psalms. If you recall, Psalm 1 describes the blessed person who walks in God's ways in contrast to the unbeliever who walks in their own ways. One path for the person ends in blessing. The other path ends in judgment. And when we think about Psalm 1 and the blessed man that it speaks of there, we can be thankful that Jesus Christ is the very real application of the blessed man. Because he walks uprightly, he walks blameless before God. That's who our Savior is. We're united to an upright, blameless, holy, perfect Savior. Psalm 2 details the triumphant, the triumphant Jesus as he is installed as king. Yahweh installs Jesus upon the holy mountain to reign over all. That's Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 3 then begins a flurry of Psalms. Psalm 3 through to Psalm 7. They each highlight suffering and lament because of a sinful world. And then Psalm 8. Psalm 8 then is the psalm that speaks of God in the person of Christ, spoken of in verse 4 of Psalm 8 as the Son of Man. It speaks of Him establishing a kingdom of everlasting righteousness. And so between Psalm 1 and 2, which are considered a single psalm in a very real way, between Psalm 1 and 2, you have Psalm 3 to 7, all speaking of suffering and lament, and then you have Psalm 8. What is, what is the significance of Psalm 8? Well, when you get to Psalm 8, you see that all that suffering and all that lament is taken away. It's removed in Jesus. It's removed in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The everlasting rule and reign of God in the person of Christ, the Son of Man. We can be thankful for that. And so as we journey through Psalm 3 this morning... Look at the superscription again with me. The superscription are those little words above most psalms. They're divinely inspired. They're not put there by the publisher of your Bible. They're divinely inspired text. Look at that again, again with me. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, you'll notice that Psalm 1 and 2 don't have a superscription. Psalm 3 is obviously, therefore, the first one to have one. And it's the first time the word psalm appears in the Bible. The superscription gives us both who wrote the psalm, obviously David, and the context in which he wrote the psalm. Namely, it says there, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so David had problems. <laughs> his son was trying to kill him. I trust none of you have any of your children trying to take your life. But Absalom certainly had problems. We have problems too. We have problems too. Each of us are carrying this very moment specific problems as a result of being in a fallen world. 
Our problems are frequent. And so under our first heading, number one, our frequent problems in verses one and two, let's begin to consider this psalm together. Look again at verse one. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. David's on a runaway train, if you will. He's fleeing. This is written of in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. David's obviously reigning as king. This shepherd boy became the king of Israel. And so let's turn to 2 Samuel for a moment. Second Samuel, and I want us to begin by glancing at chapter 7. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Now it came when the king, that's David, lived in his house. Yahweh had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. That's quite interesting. You have the enemies of David. And who were the enemies of David? They were the other nations outside of Israel. They were attacking him. But then, you know, so this was a peaceful season. Peaceful season. But then what occurs as you get to chapters 15? So flick there with me. When you get to chapters 15 and 16, it's not attacks from outside of Israel. It's now an enemy from inside Israel who begins to attack David. And sadly, as, as we know, it's his very own son. But look at verse 6 of 2 Samuel 15. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom did that by undermining the king, his own father. Look up at verse 2 of chapter 15. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment... Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge and king in the land. Then every man who has any sweet suit or cause would come to me and I would give him justice. And he's just undermining the king. Absalom did that for a very, very long time. He was slowly turning the people of Israel away from its king and toward himself. Look at verse 7. Now it came about at the end of 40 years. That's a long time. 40 years of undermining the king, whom God had appointed, by the way. That Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant 
vow to vow while I was living at Geshur in Aram, saying, if Yahweh shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve Yahweh. David, the king, said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from the city of Gilah, while he was offering the sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. Verse 13, then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel, that's a lot of people, are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee. For otherwise, none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David writes Psalm 3 as he's fleeing Absalom. That's when he writes this psalm. Fleeing a person who has overtaken his throne and threatening to take his life. But it's not just one person. It's not just one person that David was fleeing from. Verse 1 says that there were many who were rising up against him. Absalom, as I said, had taken the hearts of all the men of Israel against David. And so David was fleeing, and he's fleeing into isolation as the minority. As the minority. And you know what? In times like that, when you're following the Lord and standing for Him and seeking to honor Him, though not perfect, as David as king was, when you're seeking to honor Him and you're marked by faithfulness and a desire to honor Him above all, it can feel like you're in a small minority. Right? And just as that was the reality for David, so too it is for us and our lives living as Christians. We certainly live in a time now that is not, it is really not even a time where the majority of people grow up going to Sunday school. You think about your grandparents and some of you here, you, you grew up where most all people went to Sunday school. It's more of a challenge now. I mean, it's always been a great challenge, unique to its own setting, but secularism has taken over. It's a challenge to be a Christian today. And yet by divine design, God's called us to days like this, meaning that God will equip us for days like this. The more we stand out as faithful believers, the more foes become frequent. And because the foes increase, so do the woes. You know, I was thinking this week and studying this week about how we don't really have people trying to take our life. We don't have foes like David did. But we have some significant foes. Let me tell you about some of these foes. Number one, the devil. The devil. 
First Peter 5.8 tells us that the devil, your adversary, roams like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Paul told the church in Corinth to not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. So we certainly have a foe in the devil. We certainly have a foe in the world. You say, well, hang on a second. Well, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17 tells us not to love the world. But more than that, in John chapter 15, Jesus tells us, I'll turn there and read it for us. In John chapter 15, I think it begins in verse 18. Since the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of this world, because of this, the world hates you. So we have an adversary in the world. It's one of our foes. What's the third foe? Our flesh. Our flesh. We carry around a body of flesh. You read Romans 7 and the Apostle Paul unfolds the battle of the flesh there. You know, the biography of J.C. Ryle, many of you know J.C. Ryle, the bishop. The biography of J.C. Ryle by Ian Murray, published by Banner of Truth, it's called Prepared to Stand Alone. I was given this as a gift a year or so ago. Great book. Ryle ministered during a time when the Church of England was falling headlong into false teaching and liberalism. Many were complaining about his preaching at the time, saying it was too dogmatic. Against such a tide, Ryle was willing to stand alone as the heretical teaching, and then there was capitulation that was occurring all around him, attacks upon his person, attacks upon his character increased. In the midst of that, he preached against all that. In his own words, he said this, we have a Christianity without a bone or a muscle or power. We have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen who seem not to have a single bone in their body. He said, we have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached Every year, sermons without an edge or a point or a corner, smooth as a billiard ball, awakening no sinner and edifying no saint, end quote. You know, Ryle suffered greatly in his ministry for being faithful and problems abounded. They were frequent. He lived the Christian life with Christ living in and through him. And so where did men and women like J.C. Ryle, where did their boldness come from? Where did, their, where did it come from? When David had people saying to him, as it says in verse 2 of Psalm 8, many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. Where did his boldness come from? You know... He had his son usurp his throne and become a very real threat to his life. How did David press on? How, how did he keep going? How did he avoid capitulation and just compromise and, and collapse? Well, it was because of what we see in heading number two. 
our ever-present protection in verses 3 and 4. This is where we see why. Look at verse 3. David says, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. David's foes, they sneered at him. There's no help for you in God. The world does the same to us, right? There's no help for you in that so-called God that you believe. And sometimes if we aren't careful, we can begin to live like that. We can begin to fail to recall God's goodness and faithfulness and trustworthiness and kindness and sovereignty and majestic love. But for David, as the sneers came to him about his soul having no deliverance from God, he found assurance and comfort for his soul in the truth of who God is. You see, in the midst of his chaos, in the midst of his calamity, in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his affliction, David went to the right place in his heart and mind. You have to go to the right place in your heart and mind in the midst of a difficult season in your life. You see, when David says there, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. That's a pivotal shift, but you. It's a contrast between the despair of the problems and then a pivotal shift in his heart and mind about who God is. He says, you are a shield. David obviously fought many a battle. He knew exactly what a shield does. He knew that better than most. Arrows and the thrust of a spear had been David's life. It was a shield that protected his life out on the battlefield. And so David is turning his thoughts away from his feelings. Key. Turn your thoughts away from your feelings in times of trial. And instead of being overwhelmed by the feelings, turn our minds to the truth of the safety that's found in God. All through the Psalms, God is spoken of as a shield. If you look to verse 10 of Psalm 7, David writes there, my shield is with God, or my shield is upon God, who saves the upright in heart. Psalm 18 verse 30, David again says, as for God, his way is blameless, the word of Yahweh is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. And then verse 7 of Psalm 27. Again, David writes, Hear, 
O Yahweh, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. That's the wrong psalm. That's verse 20, That's Psalm 27. Psalm 28, verse 7. Yahweh is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts. And with my song, I shall thank Him. Back to Psalm 8. You know, what we really have in Psalm 8 is the living, breathing Old Testament example of that beautiful portion of Scripture in Philippians 4. Let me read it for you. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. David is living that out here. I want you to notice in verse 3, that little phrase at the end, after he says, you are a shield, he says, about me. About me. There's a shield all about him. But he says, me. This is personal. You know, your, your parents can't trust God for you. You must trust God. It must be a personal thing for you. After asserting that God is His defense, that God is this impenetrable shield around Him, David then says, he is my glory. That Yahweh is, he says there, my glory. That's, that's an interesting phrase. That is to say, you bestow glory on me. There's a number of ways you can look at this. One way is to say that David is saying that any earthly esteem he gets from being king compares little to nothing to the glory that he can radiate and reflect as he looks not to the foes and all the woes, but as he looks to God. Psalm 34 verse 5 says, People look to you and they are radiant and their faces are not ashamed. In the midst of the pressing problems, David is trusting God here. This is a prayer to restore his life that is in a tailspin and deliver him from these pressing problems. Notice the very end of verse 3 now. Not only is Yahweh a shield and the one who gives glory that he can reflect as he keeps his eyes on God. He says that Yahweh is the one who lifts up my head. The phrase lift my head is a Hebraic term all through scripture. I mean, I think of Psalm 146, remarkable psalm, says in there that Yahweh lifts up the heads of those who are bowed down, lifts up the ones who are bowed down. Another remarkable 
piece of Psalm 146 is it also says that Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. The context there in Psalm 146 is Yahweh opens the eyes of His people to see how He is providing for them. Sometimes you and I are not thankful. We're not aware of all the ways in which God is providing for us. We need our head lifted up that our eyes might be open, that we might see. You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, David is overwhelmed there by his foes. And it says that David was walking barefoot and he was weeping and he had his head covered. He was overwhelmed. He was cast down. Well, in contrast to that time back then, David has since here now in Psalm 4, he's refocused. He's got some altitude. Some of us are so caught up in our own problems right now that we need to get some altitude. I'm not being insensitive to your own problems, but we need to get some altitude. And the way we get some altitude is by following what David does here. He'd turn to God in prayer and praise. And having turned to God in prayer, knowing that God hears his prayers, and he began to praise God for who he is, David's now confident. He's now confident that God will lift up his drooping head, dry his tears, put sandals on his feet, and then grant him peace and perseverance, which he needs to press on. Some of us need that peace in our soul and the perseverance to be able to press on. We don't get that by relying upon our own wisdom. We don't get that by remaining prideful in our heart. We get that by humbling ourselves and leaning not on our own wisdom, but on the wisdom of the Lord and in all our ways acknowledging Him and asking what does He want from us? Am I being too prideful? Am I lacking humility? Look at verse 4 now. David says, I was crying to Yahweh with my voice and He answered me from His holy mountain. You know, this is beautiful. Here's the King of Israel talking to the King of the world. And he's calling upon the king of the world in prayer. How blessed are we to be able to call upon not just the king of some island or a nation or a piece of land, but the sovereign ruler of the entire universe. You know that hymn well. Oh, what troubles we often carry and the burdens we often share, what is it? All because we do not carry things to the Lord in prayer. That's the Matthew Johnston version. If Randall Major was here, he'd tell us all. You know it. We're blessed to be able to pray to the sovereign ruler of the entire 
universe and to know that the king of the universe answers our prayers. What we see as we move from this frequent problem to this ever-present protection, what we see next from David as a result of turning to God in prayer and praise is number three, our deep sense of peace in verses five and six. I just love verse five. Look there with me. I lay down and slept. I woke for Yahweh sustains me. That's such a beautiful verse. Knowing that God never sleeps, David went to sleep. Our Lord never sleeps, he never slumbers. Even in the midst of drama and the difficulty, David trusted in God as his shield who was protecting him even as he slept. Sometimes it's hard to get to sleep, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to get back to sleep, isn't it? Sometimes we, we worry in the night. Sometimes we carry burdens all through the night, but what happens in the morning? What does God tell us in His Word? And he tells us that joy comes in the morning. There's nothing quite like sleeping on something. You know, here, David with such confidence in God, he was able to just go to sleep. We just read it in Philippians, be anxious for nothing. It's hard not to worry. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not worry. And what we know about our Lord and the Christian life is that if Jesus calls us not to do something, he doesn't just call us like a heavy taskmaster to do something that he also doesn't enable us to be able to do. That's the beauty of the Christian life. Look what happens when David wakes up in verse 6. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who set themselves against me. That's clarity. Worried about problems. Recalls who God is. Goes to sleep. Wakes up, come at me. I'm not worried. It's not arrogance. It's not arrogance. That's faithfulness. Second Samuel 15 verse 13 tells us that a great multitude was with Absalom. David wakes up. Verse 6, I'll not be afraid of Absalom and the tens of thousands who want my head. You know, you and I cannot be afraid of this world that Jesus tells us hates us. If we fear the devil and fear the world and let our flesh, therefore, in light of that fear, run free, Christians make unfaithful decisions. 
and collapse and compromise. But when we grasp what David is grasping here, that our God is a shield about us, that he is our glory in the sense that he showers us with his love and his mercy and his grace in, in the essence, who he is, his glory. We then reflect that glory as we live lives saying, I'll not be afraid of 10,000 people. David was in the minority when he woke up. We're in the minority when we're birthed into the kingdom of God. From an earthly perspective. Why is that? Because as has been well said, one plus God is the majority. When you're in God, in the person of Christ, no matter how many foes we may have, no matter how many may press in against us, we're always in the majority. Even when we're few here on earth. We're united to the one in heaven. And one with God. We're never outnumbered. Never outflanked. Never outrun. Never overwhelmed. And so we're never to fear. Because God is our shield. He's our tower of refuge and strength. What peace this brings to a troubled mind. You might have a very troubled mind today. That's why we need Psalm 3. Who are you trusting? And what are you trusting in? Who are you trusting and what are you trusting in? Your own ingenuity to be able to navigate the pressing problems? Or are you trusting in the goodness of God who will equip you to navigate your pressing problems? We've got to trust in God as we end 2021 and enter into 2022. We're going to come to him in prayer. We're going to remember his mighty power over our life. We've got to rest in his care for us and not be worried, frantic children, but rest in him. Why can we rest in him? Well, I would say this, because he loves his son, the Lord Jesus. If you're in the Son, then you are in the love between the Father and the Son. You're in His love and care. And God then is to you all-powerful and He's all-sufficient in His protection of you. Well, the final aspect of this psalm that we see Is number four, ongoing petition. The necessity for ongoing petition. Look at verse seven. David's had a sleep, he's woken up. I'm not afraid of 10,000 people. And then in verse seven, he says, Arise, O Yahweh. That phrase is critical. 
Arise, O Yahweh. Save me, O my God. He's motivated and ready for war again. That's who we're dealing with here. This is a war psalm. He's ready for war. David's confident. More than confident. That kind of attitude that we see in verse 7, that moves him to seek the glory of God more and more. That little phrase, arise, O Lord, is a term throughout the Old Testament that speaks of Israel's marching song into battle. That's what that is. Verse 7 is David back on his feet, filled with confident hope in God. And he is saying, arise, O God, let's fight the war. You and I are in a war against the devil and our flesh. We're told to not love the world that doesn't love us. We're told to reach them with the gospel, but we're not to be infected by their systems, as 1 John 2, 15 to 17 tells us. You know, Jesus has overcome the world. In Jesus, we're more than conquerors. Greater is he that is in me than he that is the devil that is in the world. We have our own shield and sword, don't we? That we must take up. Ephesians chapter 6. Back in 2 Samuel 15, when David was under siege and in a tailspin, he prayed in verse 31 of 2 Samuel 15, O Yahweh, I pray, make their counsel foolishness. The kind of attitude here in verse 7 and that kind of prayer in 2 Samuel is an attitude where we see David longing for God to be vindicated and for the wicked of this world to be crushed. Look at the middle of verse 7. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. You think of when David was under duress, there was that guy, Shimei, who would just hurl abuse at David as he walked by. David is longing for God, God's name to be vindicated. You know, as we pray and we seek God, as we don't rely on our own wisdom, but we see more of Christ and less of this world and less of the worries of this world. In many ways, our heart cry becomes that old hymn, take the world, but give me Jesus. As we experience problems and we then remember our protection, it gives us peace. But what is it that starts the realigning and what is it that maintains that reigniting? What is it? It's ongoing prayers, ongoing petitions 
to God. And they're not prayers of doubt and prayers of worry. They're prayers that are confident and assured and hopeful. Look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And then David ends by saying, your blessing be upon your people. You know, David suffered because of his sin, to be sure. Prior to when we read about Absalom coming after him, just a few chapters back, we know that David committed great sin. He went off track. He sinned greatly against the Lord with Bathsheba. And that just spiraled it out of control. And then what followed that, having committed that sin, was trouble. In many ways, the trouble of Absalom was a result of his sin. Trouble always comes after sin. So even what we can learn from all that, though, is that even when a Christian suffers for sinful and wrong choices that they've made in the past... The child of God can say, I trust God because my God is causing all things taking place in my life to work together for my good and God's glory. It may not even be willful sin that brings trouble. We know that marked faithfulness to God brings trouble in this world. Whatever our lot, this psalm teaches us to say and to pray, it's well with my soul. My salvation belongs to Yahweh. It came from Yahweh. No one can ever take it away from me. And Yahweh is a shield about me. You know, if you notice how David ends this psalm, He ends this psalm by saying, your blessing be upon your people. What does that tell us? That tells us that David wasn't caught up in his own world. He, he, he realized that God made him as part of a community. And that he knew that if he was aligned and right and confident and trusting God and not overcome by the problems, but relying upon and recalling who God is and the ever protection that he has from God and the peace that God gives him. He knew that blessing rains down upon a people, not just him. And so as we exit 2021 and enter into 2022, we have to maintain that we are a community of people. Asking that God's blessing would rain down upon us as a local church. That we would give him glory. That we would not be dwelling upon the pressing problems. But that we would be trusting in and hoping in the one who is a shield about us. And one who hears our prayers. And blesses us. And that when we go to sleep with worries. We pray, and then we say, I'm not afraid of 10,000 peoples coming against me. Let's pray. Father, we come.
before you and we thank you for Psalm 3. We thank you that it reflects lament and then a complete confidence in you. And that's what we are. That's who we are. We live in a fallen world. We suffer. And Lord, we don't want to go off rails in our times of difficulty. We want to be like David here and say, but you are a shield around me. You lift my head. Help us to not be so absorbed in our own world and our own thinking and our own problems that we get lost in that and fail to rise out of that by your grace, by acknowledging your goodness and your kindness. Because as David ended this psalm, we want blessings to pour out upon your people. We are a community of believers here. Help us to fellowship you and bring you glory. We thank you for this year. We thank you for your marked faithfulness to this church. Help us to honor you. Be with all those from the church family that are traveling away, that are holidaying. Be with anyone out of town visiting us here today. Be with anyone who hasn't yet trusted in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would they do that in their hearts now? Help us to enjoy a rich time of fellowship now we pray in Christ's name. Amen.